Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. And today, on this episode of our Zuzalu series, we are exploring some new frontiers. New frontiers and new technologies, all of which are poised to completely revolutionize the world and change everything about the operating system that society is currently running. Today, we are exploring the frontier of life. Does it have to end? Is there a technical reason as to why we can't live forever? And if we do figure out how to live forever, should we? What does living forever even mean? How does that look? What kind of ethical considerations are there? The longevity discussion was front and center at Zuzalu. There's a DAO called Vita DAO, which is a community-owned collective dedicated to funding and advancing longevity science that organized an entire weeks-long worth of talks and panels and workshops, which included speakers like Aubrey de Grey, who is like the Vitalik of longevity research. The conversation of longevity definitely evokes some natural reflexes in people, uh, but in different directions. Some people get triggered by the thought of the pursuit of longevity, where the idea of living forever just seems unnatural and offensive to some, and they immediately reject the idea outright. Some argue that it's immoral. Others argue that it's impossible. Everyone seems to have an opinion on longevity, like, immediately. One thing I noticed at Zuzalu is that there are different tribes that emerge out of the health and longevity space. There is the health and wellness group, which would be characterized as the morning exercisers, the cold plungers, those who refrained from drugs or alcohol, who did the occasional fast, and overall attempted to live as healthy of a life as possible in the two months that we had at Zuzalu. And then there's the longevity tribe, who are closer, closer to like crypto nerds, who really like geek out on research and science. And they're all in the pursuit of the longevity pill, the silver bullet intervention that humans need so that we can live forever, the science-y research innovation side of things. And interestingly, these two groups were like really far apart. The overlap between the health and wellness group and the longevity group was not that great. And as a member of the health and wellness tribe, we often joked that the longevity tribe are just taking the gambit of ignoring health and wellness in the pursuit of trying to find the silver bullet while living a fun and more unrestricted life along the way. Anyways, one important note about the pursuit of longevity is that there are two conversations here. One is slowing down aging, and the second is accelerating rejuvenation. The deceleration of aging can buy us time, and there's a lot of effort and research going into this, and it's pretty simple. Exercise, good food, sunlight, friends and family, not looking at screens, etc. But the magic really happens with the acceleration of rejuvenation. This is longevity. This is the secret sauce that's going to get us from living to 150 years to 1,500 years or longer. And if the idea of living beyond 200 years just makes you feel icky, I get it. It's a weird thing to wrap your head around. The first interview in this episode in this longevity series is with Patrick Linden, who wrote a book called The Case Against Death, which flippantly describes why death is bad and life is good. He addresses some of the sociocultural reactions to the pursuit of longevity, and I think this is just an appropriate place to start for people who are not yet bought into the idea that longevity is inherently a noble pursuit. After our interview with Patrick, we'll talk with Sergio Ruiz, who is working in the field of epigenetic reprogramming, aka reprogramming the way our DNA is expressed, and specifically reprogramming it to go backwards to a more youthful state, which is apparently a thing you can do over and over and over again, and is currently the most promising area of research in the whole pursuit of longevity thing. And then lastly, we'll follow up with Michael Greer, 
who is the founder of an app called Humanity, which uses a combination of big data and AI models to produce a longevity score. And it's an app that I was using throughout my time at Zuzalu in order to expand, extend my health span as long as possible. A goal that I've always been trying to pursue, but sometimes crypto gets in the way. Like I said in the intro, longevity had a front and center focus at Zuzalu, although not everyone was bought into it. The growth of the longevity industry is constrained by Nathan, nation state regulations. It's hard to do research when things like the FTA just get in the way of all viable experiments, which is why the longevity people and the network state people mingled so well together. The network state people want to provide the longevity people a place to do legal longevity research. I understand that the idea of human experiments in the pursuit of living forever is kind of a bad look. But first, it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not this like weird, mad scientist experiments playing around with human DNA. It's just that the FDA has set such an immensely high bar that most human studies just can't get over it. Additionally, the downstream effects of discovering new treatments and interventions are immense. Part of the pursuit of longevity naturally comes with the elimination of many, many diseases that both kill millions and cost trillions. The successful pursuit of longevity can free up an entire healthcare industry of ineffective practices and expensive interventions and unlock trillions upon trillions of yearly GDP, all while massively reducing suffering along the way. So even if the thought of living forever does make you feel icky, the second order effects of finding ways to be healthier for, un for longer will unlock so many new doors for so many new humans. So that is my preamble for this longevity conversation. I think y'all are going to learn quite a lot. So let's go ahead and get into our first conversation with Patrick Linden and the case against death. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Are you a MetaMask user? Well, you're listening to Bankless, so of course you are. The wallet you know and love just got a whole lot better. MetaMask Portfolio is the ultimate one-stop shop for all of your crypto needs. It gives you a holistic view of your crypto portfolio across multiple chains and multiple addresses all at once. You can easily view and manage all your coins, tokens, and NFTs in one convenient place just by connecting your wallet. MetaMask Portfolio goes beyond just viewing your portfolio, though. Inside the portfolio, you can do all the incredible money verbs that make DeFi so powerful. You can buy, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets with ease. It's like having a powerful battle station for all your DeFi moves right at your fingertips. So if you're looking to do more in Web3 your way, MetaMask Portfolio is the answer. I already know that you have MetaMask Wallet, so go check out your MetaMask Portfolio. Learn more at metamask.io slash portfolio. Bankless Nation, we are once again at Zuzalu, and I'm here with Patrick Linden. And Patrick Linden has a hot take for the world. Patrick, what's your hot take? It's very simple that life is good and death is bad. And How dare we, you? Well, we should do all we can to avoid death, basically, is my idea. Why have you gotten... And the, the story here is that uh, explaining this, that, that death is bad, there's, well, there's more to this story, but yeah. society uh, pushes back on this frequently. So maybe we can unpack this a little bit more. Like, Why is this a hot take and, and why do you get resistance for this? 
Well, there are two groups of people. So, so, so one group will say, what's your next book called? Kittens are cute. Mm-hmm. Pizza is delicious. Right. That is, they take it as, as an obvious fact that, right. that uh, death is bad, but not only death, but also the slow death. Mm. Aging, of course, uh, is bad, right? And then there's the other group of people who say, you can't think like that. Death and aging is part of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And it's not something we should resist per se, at least not do all we can, but rather learn to accept in a kind of gracious way. Right. And, you know, they have various ways of saying that. They say that you shouldn't try to add years to your life, but you should try to add life to your years mm-hmm. and so on. So they will say, sure, it's okay to be interested in, in the quality of life that we have, but to extend it is not something we should be doing. And that's, it seems like it's a majority view, in fact. I don't know. Have you talked to people about this yourself? And what, what attitudes do you get? Yeah, I think just a lot of people aren't ready to put themselves into the mindset that um, that hu- the human project is one of seeking life. And that's a novel like area for people to consider. And so when we say like life is good, uh, like you said, like many people are like, yeah. But then when we start unpacking what that means, like, oh, no, life always, life forever. So when, when yeah. you say like life is good, death is bad, is this synonymous with the pursuit of immortality? Is, is this kind of the, on the same track here? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't personally think immortality is the right word because immortality logically means that you're unable to die. And that would be a very dangerous proposition because what could happen if you actually couldn't die? You could have an accident and uh, be buried in, in a house and then... Millions right. of years later, you, you find yourself buried hundreds of feet down in right. the soil, right. so unable, talking, to, right. unable to move, right. perhaps in pain, but also unable to die. So we're not talking about like supernatural powers. We're not talking about yeah. supermen. We're talking yeah. about simply the lack of aging yeah. and the lack of uh, biological processes that cause us to die. Well, so what I object to then is the fact that we are forced to die before we want to die. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit about, essentially about expanding human freedom, as I see it. So I find it a prison, really, mm-hmm. uh, f- for us that we have this set limit that we, we just can't break, break through so far, right? Mm-hmm. We're trying to. Um, and so what I want is indefinite life extension. Mm-hmm. So there's no definite time that nature ordains you, now you die. Mm-hmm. But if you run out of interest in life uh, or prospect in life, etc., and you think, or oh, for some, some reason you're very unfortunate circumstances and so on, life can be an exit. Right. But of course, I also hope that I will never be in such sad circumstances. Mm-hmm. So in effect, I want this indefinite, completely open road. I want, and, and every good person, I want to have this possibility of a completely open road. You have no idea when it's going to end, mm-hmm. but it's going to keep going as long as you want, with some luck. I mean, right. there are accidents out there, etc. I, I think I think it's very good when you talk about supernatural, because I think immortality in some sense 
belongs to the supernatural and right. not the natural world. I mean, even when we talk about immortal jellyfish, for example, or uh, other immortal creatures, uh, so-called immortal creatures—they're not immortal at all, mm -hmm. right? They're just—you you can say they're contingently immortal. That is, they're immortal as long as nobody steps on them, right? Well, yeah, you know, yeah, a motorboat yeah. go, drives through it or something like that. It will keep going because aging is not going to kill it, right? But of course, this issue is, is is so tied up with aging because aging is that which kills the most people, and yeah. and is that which means that no matter what you do and how lucky you are the Grim Reaper is going to get you. Right. Yeah, so I think there's two boundaries on this argument that um, living forever is good, that, that life is good. Um, one boundary is, like we said, like, well, we always want the option to be able to die. That is an option that we would like to retain. And so we don't want the curse of watching the machinations of the universe pass by us for thousands and thousands of years while we watch our families and loved ones come and go and we are just this being that exists in this space-time continuum at some unknown where time just becomes weird like we don't want that that's not what we no. want similarly um with the one that we haven't talked about yet um and I, I can't remember the name of this, like, I think Greek fable or something. Uh, but this one man goes up to a god and, and asks for uh, the ability to live forever. And he's granted yeah. that wish. Yeah. But what he forgets to ask for as well is for health. And so he does live forever, but he slowly, he continues to age. And he yeah. slowly gets more fe feeble and like, just, I don't know the, the full story, but turns yeah. to dust. So like, there's two guardrails that we want yeah. to split between. Uh, and that when we say life is good, we mean to stick between these two things. We want to be able to live forever while having the op while like being hit by a car will still kill you. But also we don't want to be decrepit forever. We want, uh, we want our health and our, our rejuvenation to be very, very strong. And this is like the needle that we want to thread as a species, correct? Yeah, exactly. So in reality, uh, the longevity will come as an effect of the health. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone who works in this area see health as being the means to longevity. It's, it's not mere survival that anyone is interested in. Uh, well, I am interested in mere survival, uh, but uh, having a, a, the, the, the quality of your life being what also causes the quantity mm. is, is the ideal we're looking for here. Mm. Absolutely. And that's something that when you argue these ideas and when you look at surveys that ha has been done, uh, people in general become more sympathetic to this longevity project once uh, it's explained to them that they will have a good health with it. Mm -hmm. Right? Then, then uh, the the interest shoots up. But it, it's it's people have a very hard time wrapping their mind around it. It's as if they they have a, a vision of what it is like to be eighty or ninety, and especially when they're young and far away from it, that is incredibly pessimistic. Right. So uh, when you ask just the ordinary general public, uh, or if you, I did this in my class. So I taught a class at NYU for many years called Death, Longevity, and Values. Mm. And each semester I started with um, a survey of people's or the, 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 the students' attitudes to death and longevity. And I asked a question that was 
it was clearly, clearly specified that they would be in good health. I asked the question how long they wanted to ideally live. And I got an average of 90. Mm-hmm. And this is even when I explained to them, you're going to be in, in, in right. decent health and so on. And still, you got like a spectrum between, you know, 70 and, and, and 100. Mm-hmm. After 100, it's, it's as if they could not fathom the idea that you could be 100 plus and still in good health. Of course, now we see it's one of the, the biggest growing demographics in this world, the fastest growing demographic. It's a tiny demographic, but it's fast. Mm-hmm. It's growing very rapidly now, the 100 plus right. and the 90 plus mm-hmm. and 80 plus, right? What would your answer be? Well, my answer is uh, I can't give uh, a number. It would be ridiculous to give a number. I don't know what my life is going to be when I'm 200. Uh-huh. or 1,000, right. or 5,000. If I say 200 would be enough, what happens on my 200th uh, uh, birthday? Mm. I'm sure I, I have tennis scheduled for next week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm sure I have right. some book I haven't finished, a project I haven't done. You know, and, and or, or I'm, I may just want to say, well, it would be terrible for me not to be able to just watch the sky. Right. Uh, I, th- I think people are, um, I think the mindset that we would have uh, would obviously adapt itself. And uh, I'm talking here about longevity through science, through health, right? which means that it's not something where you would be the only one in the situation, right. but you would have many people choosing to live 200 or 1,000 or 5,000 years, right? right. Uh, and none of them, I think, have a good reason to say, I mean, it's completely arbitrary to, to sit and guess in, in 2023, uh, uh, to guess that I'd rather be dead uh, the day after my, my 200th birthday. Right. right. I mean, it's ridiculous. So, so, so it just show you the immaturity of this subject matter in the public discussion. That even the most uh, basic fallacies right. when it comes to thinking of that are underexplored. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I wrote my book, my book, The Case Against Death, in order to expose all the fallacious reasoning right. around this topic that is just uh, uh, so underdeveloped. Right. Yeah. So I think people, when they wake up every single morning, they don't really ask themselves this, but like if, if for the thought experiment, you can wake up in the morning and be like, do you want to die today? And the answer is probably going to be no. And then you can ask yourself again that same question the next day, and the answer is going to be no. And what you're saying is like, well, you can repeat that process up until you're 90, yeah. and then you're going to wake up at 90 with this, um, all of this health span technology and all of this longevity technology and all of this improved health uh, uh, environment that we can create for ourselves, that technology is going to create for ourselves. And at 90, you're going to wake up and be like, no. I'm I'm ready to go to 91 plus one day, yeah. and that's and so it's not really about. I think when you asked the the question of like uh, to what age uh, do you want to live to, people are assuming this like decay function yeah. in their life that is a fallacy yeah. that you're saying like don't assume the decay function. Exactly. The def- we're trying to eliminate the yeah. decay function, yeah. and so estimate your lifespan w- once we eliminate this decay function. Exactly, but. 
even when you explicitly postulate right. that we're not going to have, as, as you put it, the decay function, people still say 90. 90, right, yeah. Well, because they're stuck <laughs> yeah. in that mindset, right? It's like yeah. Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. They're like stuck yeah. in this world yeah. where like, yeah, we, we, we live to 100 and then it's it. Yeah. It's interesting when you say Stockholm Syndrome. So if, if not all listeners mm-hmm. are aware what that is, it's basically when well, it comes from a, a kidnapping case in Stockholm, mm-hmm. in Sweden, actually. And uh, uh, it was um, the, the kidnap victim started identifying with her uh, captors. Right. And, and so the idea here is that we are captive to aging and death. Mm-hmm. So since we can't do, we can't escape, it looks like. Uh, we might as well identify with the captors right. and say, we okay, it's good. We, it, yeah. You know, well, I actually want this. I want to fall apart. I want to see my parents fall apart. I want to lose my grandparents. I will go gracefully into that good night. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, you know, this is just how it is. This is what I want. I wouldn't want the opposite. You know, and then people start intellectualizing it. So, hmm, what can I say on behalf of my, my captors aging and death? Mm. Uh, how can I paint them in a positive right. light? Right. Okay, I can't escape, but I can kind of identify and glorify and make the captors' will my will and thereby kind of overcome them. This is like bargaining, right? We're bargaining with death. Yeah, Yeah. Uh Yeah. So, so, so philosophy uh, in Montaigne's world, world, the the French philosopher Montaigne, is he says all all geared and all history geared towards uh, having us accept death. Right. And he himself tried to. I mean, he was himself in that school of thought that this is something we shouldn't be afraid of, we shouldn't resist, etc., which is very understandable, of course, when you live in a pre-scientific era mm-hmm. or very early scientific era. Right. Yeah. But now such passivity is, is itself a, a problem and, and dangerous because if people understood the very simple truth that it's better to be youthful and alive than to be old or dead... Um, we would see investment that, well, maybe we could have been 20 years ahead today from where we are now. But there's a, I mean, it, it's a scandal. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you think about the things we can afford in this world and that we cannot afford, apparently, or there's no interest in stopping aging, which is hurting everyone around us, is an absolute outrage. Right. And we, we, we should be outraged. But... You know, the most important thing is to, to wake up now and try to undo the incredible harm of inaction right. uh, and non-committal that is being sustained by a refusal to think about death in a kind of straightforward way where we say, okay, enough with the nonsense. There isn't much good about aging and dying if it's the end it's a personal catastrophe for every mm-hmm. everyone, everyone, basically right. everyone. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is like it's just this like blind spot that we've accepted. Yeah, that uh, maybe like the medical field, the medical uh, areas of academic study and and actual practitioners just like just don't look there because no nowhere in humanity have we had the tools or the conversations to actually point our yeah. attention to aging. So, Patrick, why now? Why is now the time? to try and, and uh, illuminate this, this blind spot that humans have? Well, so now is... Well, the thing is, yes, it is now because now is what we have. But it could have been, mm-hmm. uh, it could have been uh, something we've done all, you know, uh, the whole last century. Mm-hmm. It could have been the focus 
and of course there were people who thought it should be the focus of science uh, very early, like uh, Francis Bacon, right. Roger Bacon, and uh, Descartes, mm-hmm. and uh, Bentham, and, uh, and other philosophers who, who, who thought that science should be concerned with this. So, well, it's not today. I mean, it, it is, it, we should have been doing this for, for a long, long, long time, right. but all we have now is the now, and now, now is high time mm-hmm. to start. Of course, right? There is more promise now that this ambition is not just a pipe dream, mm-hmm. but uh, we hear, uh, of course, uh, weekly about small, small, promising, mm-hmm. possible breakthrough. We're still waiting for the the, the kind of cure that that uh, passes the gold standard and where we have good uh, longitudinal uh, and clinical studies and so on. But there are many uh, uh, people, not enough people at all. I mean, uh, some estimates say there there are only 5,000 or so working on uh, fundamental aging and so on. So so much, much, much too few smart people are working on it. But there are a lot of different paradigms that are being pursued. And that itself is very, very promising. There, there isn't just one approach, but there, there's a plurality of various um, approaches and interventions uh, from the, the kind of everyday simple interventions they were getting better and better and better at. I don't know, if, if you follow the, the debate about what we should and shouldn't eat, you know, it's, it, it's, it's still a, a terribly messy yeah, <laughs> situation. Right, right, yeah. uh-huh. Only meat, no meat. Right. Only vegetables, no, not right. vegetables or right. this and that. But I mean, of course, uh, sometimes that overshadows. There is a lot of consensus as well uh, that you, you, you should avoid eating too much sugar. Right. You should get your exercise. You shouldn't smoke. Right. You shouldn't drink. Maybe not at all. Or a little bit you can drink, right? And, um, and, and you shouldn't uh, engage in meaningful projects um, and so on, right? You should call your mom. Right. Things, like, <laughs> things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Those things are all positive when it comes to longevity. And, and these are things that you can do today. Right. And in fact, w- when you think about it and you, when you think about what value and beauty it is in just Existing, even if you have problem, even if you have bad days, um, it might make you want to think. Well, uh, let me be serious about my health, and let's do this. Why we're waiting for the miracle drugs? Mm-hmm. So, in some sense, uh, uh, we can take action today uh, uh, because the longer we can keep us with this kind of low tech interventions, we can keep us alive till the big breakthroughs will come. Right. I think it is worth noting that um, a lot of the world of uh, the, the health industry, the, the health academia, health research, health practitioners, the hospital system, like if you ask a cancer researcher what they're doing, they're saying, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to cure cancer. Uh, if you ask um, some like infectious disease researcher, they say, oh, I'm trying to cure infectious disease. Some uh, metabolic disease practitioner, what are they doing? They're trying to cure metabolic disease. Uh, and so as a whole, we're all pr- approaching these more surgical parts of uh, health interventions. But if you really zoom out and look at the healthcare system as a whole, each one of those systems is trying to create health and prevent death. And so this, the idea of the health industry 
is a longevity industry. It is a longevity pursuit. It's just people inside of this system are, it's like the, the elephant, the people feeling the elephant metaphors, like the, the, the cancer people are just feeling one leg and they say, Oh, like, how do I, how do I help health? I prevent cancer. But if you look at the elephant as a whole, what health and the medical industry is trying to do is preventing death. But no one really seems to be able to zoom out and understand like what this thing is from the big picture. But that makes me hopeful that society is on a cusp of like a phase change where once this narrative, once this story breaks out and once people realize it and once this gets spread through the, the culture, through the Internet, through memes, through propagation, through podcasts like this, I'm actually hopeful that there can be a pretty rapid phase change of people understanding like, oh, pursuit of health is pursuit of contingent more immortality do you see are you are you that hopeful as well because i am that hopeful are you hopeful yeah i'm very hopeful and i think that the practice the the science the advent of medicine that actually works on aging and intervention that, that works on aging together with the ideological change they will feed each other mm. so the more hope that's rationally based that people can prolong their youth, the more positive they're going to be. Right. And this, this is what surveys show as well. In fact, just knowing about the various projects of extending life makes people more positive to it. Right. Simple, simple, simple exposure to it. Um, and the way you describe the, the healthcare system, too much of it is, is sick care, really. Right. Too much of it is, is not preventative medicine. And that's an incredibly waste of money. Mm. So of course, because you're extending yeah. the worst parts of yeah. your life. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a terrible waste of money, and it's it's a it's a terrible wasted opportunity to relieve suffering. Mm-hmm. So uh, there needs to be a, a, a kind of mindset change here. Right. And the interest, in terms of yeah. dollars spent yeah. where, versus suffering reduced yeah. is the worst spe- like allocation of resources that we have. Because yeah. actually, it actually probably net increases human suffering. Yeah, it, it's 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 terrible. I mean, of course, it, it's it's great when you have uh, something that that can manage a disease or patch it up mm-hmm. <laughs> or even cure it. it. It's fantastic, but it's much much better to have us not get sick in the first place, right. and and it should be obvious. And in fact, I like what you said before when you described this kind of old mindset that, in fact. They see a contradiction where there is no contradiction. If you if you if you talk to people about this, even in the health profession or even in the science, many will have a, a kind of reaction when you put it in terms of longevity. When in fact, if they succeed, it's right. exactly longevity. Right. I mean, they're going to get that as a side effect, and we, and we want to get it as a side effect from addressing the root causes of aging. Of course. When, it, when we look at potential upsides or, or potential breakthroughs, they must come from addressing aging, the mechanisms, the various many mechanisms of aging. We don't have to understand them to be able to successfully do something about them, fortunately, because it's very complicated. But that's why, because we get cancer, we get diabetes, we get Alzheimer's because we age. Mm-hmm. So what was the average age of people dying from COVID? It was 80, around 80, right? Mm. How many people died from COVID under 65? 11%, mm. right? Mm. So I want to say, look, what's going on here 
is people are also dying from aging. Right. They're not just dying from COVID, right? Most mm-hmm. of them. They're also dying from a- aging. That undermines their uh, immune system, etc., and feebles them in various ways. Um, and and so you can just see what a more youthful population, how much more resistant they would be to a virus like this, etc. Mm-hmm. You can, I mean, the the potential of saving money here right. that can then be used even to address particular illnesses etc is enormous so i don't know if you saw uh, david sinclair's uh, article last year Mm-mm. so he wrote an article with two economists pub- published in nature where he calculated how much in the world uh, money would be saved by retarding aging that is prolonging youth one year and it was thirty-eight trillion. <laughs> one one year dollars. of more healthy people yeah, yeah. saves us thirty-eight trillion dollars. Yeah, yeah, it's worth thirty-eight trillion dollars. Yeah. One year, one year. So, uh, yeah, this this is uh, this is uh, where where progress can be made, and even even if 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 you can't make people see that it's good for them to live longer, which is absurd that you can't make people see that. But even if you can't, you can say, look, this is how much suffering we're avoiding. Mm-hmm. Right. Because no one likes cancer, right? right. Aging causes cancer, you could say, mm-hmm. or it is, you know, makes it much more likely that you get cancer at least. Yeah. So fixing aging is fixing cancer, etc., etc., etc. So I think step by step, it will dawn on people uh, this project makes sense. <laughs> sure. Yeah, financially and economically, <laughs> it, it makes sense. And because uh, keeping somebody alive at like 90, 95, 100 years old is the most costly and precarious time in their life to keep them alive because when they're dying of cancer at, at 90, it, like atherosclerosis or dementia or Alzheimer's is not far behind them. And so that's why you say they're dying of aging. Even though it's cancer, it's really aging because there's three other things they're going to die from in the next five years. And so keeping someone alive yeah. at that age is the most expensive and also the uh, time in their life in which they are suffering the most. And so I think the, the financial and economic argument is to take all of that capital that we expend uh, say, trying to prevent people from dying when they are 90 push that forward and apply that capital when they are 30, 40, and 50 to increase their health span and their longevity interventions then. And so that the ROI on that dollars is just a 10 to 1 order of magnitude increase because it's easier to manage at that point in time. And then people actually can effectively live longer while they are not suffering, while they are not in the worst part of their life in a hospital bed dying of 13 different things. I'm assuming this is like the summary, the good summary of the, the financial and economic argument. Uh, absolutely. And, and there are more dimensions to it because it's also the fact that when people are youthful, they can work. Mm. So you also mm-hmm. get taxes right. from healthy people. Yeah. Because it's uh, you know we, we see in in France now they're trying to increase the the, the pension age and so on. Uh, that's uh, today necessary most likely, but um, uh, it's something that can be a good thing. People 
uh, keep healthy if they work. They can go down. They don't have to work full time, etc. It's actually good for people mm -hmm. to work a bit longer. Uh, and the time we have after we retire is just so much longer today mm -hmm. that it's not a cheat, really. Right. It's a necessity. But it's it's. So I'm not defending exactly how Macron went about this right. at all, right? It should be subtle. You should have people who work hard with their bodies, physical work, etc. That's a different story, right? So you have mm -hmm. to have to do this in an intelligent way. But all in all, what you get is uh, people who are healthy are able to work uh, uh, longer, which itself is an incredibly good uh, good for econ for the economy. Certainly, uh, Patrick, you've written a book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is that book called? It's called the. Uh, it's called The Case Against Death. Mm -hmm. uh, so that pretty much explains it. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and of course, the absurd thing is that I have to write a book like that. Uh, it was you know, provoked by... Well, I was basically triggered by people's acceptance of death and how much I have to hear this. Uh, that, 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 you know, I had people, you know, without me bringing this up, saying, uh, you know, I think it's wonderful to age. You know, I heard that my my brother's 40th birthday. Mm -hmm. Sounds uh, like cope. Uh, yeah, it sounds like cope. <laughs> or massive cope. Uh, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, and, 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 and you hear it, and it's just it's so inc incredibly thoughtless. I mean, uh, you know, to, to make it personal, my, my father is in the hospital today, you know, with pneumonia. And, 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 and it's a very, very dangerous thing when you're 80, right. uh, in your 80s, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think there's anything wonderful with that at all. I think right. it's, 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 uh, it's an evil. And I think it, it's almost, it, it, it is a form of, of kind of banal evil. Uh, to have this attitude, because what you're doing is when you say that you think aging is wonderful, is you, that all of this suffering is wonderful. That something that is destroying people, destroying people's bodies and minds. You know, see Alzheimer's, which is it's like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. That somebody is there, but not there, and and you lose yourself, you lose mind. People around you suffer incredibly. Mm -hmm. To say that that's good, and then we say, oh, "No, no, we don't say that's good." <laughs> it's aging. We we don't we don't say the the diseases are, are good. We're saying that aging is good. Mm -hmm. But in practice, I don't think you can make that sharp distinction right. because if you don't get any of that deterioration, you're not aging. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but it, it's just, of course, these all nice people, and 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 it's it's not that they are evil. Right. It's just that there is a. You know that concept of the banality of evil. In some sense, it just happens, right. uh, yeah. and and everybody has their justification and so on. Of course, here it might be to protect themselves from the horror of death, as mm -hmm. some philosophers or psychologists have argued that people just don't want to really think about this, and sure. and so therefore, therefore, their 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 thought processes are kind of unusually uh, limited and 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 in the box about it. Right. Yeah. There's. Um like four or five big reasons why people will die. Like one of them is cancer. One of them is uh, metabolic disease, atherosclerosis, Alzheimer's. Like these account for like the vast majority of, of people's deaths. 
Uh, and I, and these all have like overlapping comorbidities, right? These all, if you have one, the chances of you having another one is pretty significant. So all of these different circles are like also Venn diagrams that overlap with each other. And I would assume that if you, the, the part of the Venn diagrams that overlap with all of them, you would just call that aging. Like yeah. that's what, that's what aging is. And so like with that perspective, I think it's a little bit easier to wrap your heads around like, oh, aging isn't this thing that just happens to you and you can do it gracefully or ungracefully like no it's a disease that we all have yeah. we all have this disease called aging and it's all being we're all experiencing it every single day yeah absolutely i mean and so if you for example you accept something like uh, david sinclair's view that that it has to do with you know we are information and uh, if we are like cd the mm -hmm. cd gets scratched and mm -hmm. so on i mean there's nothing good about having a scratched cd right i mean what's good about that nothing you know, what, what people mean is it's great to have that experience that you have when you're 60 or 70 right. or 80. Mm -hmm. And it's great to have those kind of long roots that you have mm -hmm. with people and projects and so on. That's great. Because it's, it's, it's paradoxically not. It's not like people get less happy right. yeah. <laughs> when they're uh -huh. old. Uh, if they're somewhat lucky with their health, they they can have the happiest years mm -hmm. despite everything. Right. But I think that's what you have to say, despite everything. Mm -hmm. Because how happy would they be if they had all those good things, the experience, the network, the roots, etc., the knowledge, but also good, youthful health. Right. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that, but, but I mean, what we have seen is that, that, that older people who also have their health are doing comparably better than those who don't. So those who have aged less, because aging is something that happens to to, to a small degree uh, on an individual level, that we, we age at differently at different speeds somewhat. And it, of course, has to do with lifestyle choices and, and luck. Mm -hmm. Patrick, uh, for all the, the listeners out there that are piqued and curious yeah. as to what to do next, what to read next, what to where to go next. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for them? Well, my book is very good. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised that you yeah, would answer this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the case against death is very. I mean, it's very good because I go through all of the arguments that people use to justify death, mm -hmm. and I trace these arguments back to their roots, philosophical mm -hmm. roots. Uh, so I talk about ancient philosophy and, and uh, psychology and things like that, right? And, and myths. Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it's, it's like we constructed this, I call it the wise view, that it's a view that, that accepting aging and death is a sign that you're somebody who's wise. Right. And there's a long tradition of, of course, people who are, were wise, like Socrates mm -hmm. and... and, and uh, uh, Plato and the Stoics and the Epicureans and a lot of these schools who all teach the same, you right. know, that this is something that is best accepted and, and, and not feared and so on. So, uh, okay, so that, that's, that's where that, that's one place. Um, there are other uh, places, of course, uh, they can read uh, Sinclair's great book about why we age mm -hmm. and why we don't have to age if they want to get into the, the more science bit. And if they want to get in uh, to do something uh, practical about it, well, they can. Well, they can contact me, or they, there's an organization called Vita Dao, mm -hmm. 
and VitaDAO will then be able to uh, connect you and uh, and and make it make it so that you can actually do something in this issue, no matter what your kind of background is. It can be from science, but it can also be from finance or or if you are humanist. Mm-hmm. So. Patrick, thank yeah. you so much for, for helping us uh, tell this story and uh, showing us the top of what seems to be a very cool and interesting rabbit hole. And so thank you for, for helping us explore that today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Arbitrum is accelerating the Web3 landscape with a suite of secure Ethereum scaling solutions. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum 1 with flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. Arbitrum Nova is quickly becoming a Web3 gaming hub and social dApps like Reddit are also calling Arbitrum home. And now Arbitrum Orbit allows you to use Arbitrum's secure scaling technology to build your own layer three, giving you access to interoperable, customizable permissions with dedicated throughput. Whether you are a developer, enterprise, or user, Arbitrum Orbit lets you take your project to new heights. All of these technologies leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. Faster transaction speeds and significantly lower gas fees. So visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first app with Arbitrum. Experience Web3 development the way it was always meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80%, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, and Bybit for TVL and Liquidity and OnRamps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. All right, Bankless Nation, we are here at the Zuzalu Network State, and I'm here with Sergio Ruiz, who's going to help guide us down the path of uh, longevity, which, uh, before we hit record, I uh, realized has an interesting intersection with some of the events that happened in the 2021 bull market, uh, but we'll get to that. Sergio, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the very, very important topics at Zuzalu is longevity. Uh, and this is a, a topic that I know Vitalik is uh, intimately interested in, and I've had my own like small history with it. But for a lot of our uh, listeners, that longevity is a new subject for them. Maybe we can just start with the basics, and that, I think that really starts with the conversation of aging. I think we all we all know what aging is. Like we get older, and like it looks like we get older, and like our bones don't work as well. But maybe you can help define it from a more technical perspective. W- what is aging? Sure. So aging itself is um, the tendency for our bodies at all levels, from a cellular level to a tissue level, an organ level, a systemic level, or a systems level, to head towards atrophy and degradation. So eventually the forgetting of performance, for the forgetting of um creation of, of uh, a new material, the, the creation of new material that is now mutated or 
you know, I like to think of it and explain it as a when you, you take a piece of paper and you Xerox it, you photocopy it, right? You start with a very high resolution, but by the time you make the thousandth copy, you end up with a blank piece of paper. You lose information. You lose resolution. That's really ultimately what aging is. As you, as you go at, across time and space, you, you lose information. Your body doesn't read information as well. And that's what ends up ultimately uh, you know, contributing to us losing our, our eyesight, our hearing, our abilities to, to jump, uh, to to even enjoy life, some some mental problems actually develop as well. So uh, it's that that whole tendency towards degradation. Yeah, and, and the idea of um, slowing aging or preventing aging, I think, uh, is a pretty common uh, common sense practice. As in, like you know, you eat good food, you exercise, you mm-hmm. don't drink alcohol, uh, and I think this is all things that that people, you know, most people know intuitively at this point. But that's also not necessarily the conversation of longevity, because longevity is not just about slowing the aging process. It's about something that's altogether different. Can you can you talk about that that different perspective that longevity has? Sure. I mean. Longevity means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's actually a term that has been used and abused mm-hmm. quite a bit. Uh, for me, longevity is the combination of health span and lifespan. Whatever intervention, whatever kind of endeavor, project, therapy, uh, drug, helps you not just live longer, but in a healthier way. And you're absolutely right. I think that a lot of the scientists have figured out that in order to really achieve that, it's it's no longer um, it's no longer okay to just kind of delay the onset of aging, but now to start looking at reversal techniques. Uh, and thankfully, science have gotten sophisticated enough to understand all the characteristics or the majority of the characteristics of aging. Um, it's it's not good to be absolute in science, right? Mm-hmm. Because then science humbles you sure. and teaches you something new, which is the beautiful thing about uh, engaging in any in scientific endeavor. But but yeah, there's there are actual processes that allow you to take a cell, for example, and turn it into a younger version of itself. Um, one of them, just as, a, as an example, is the Nobel Prize winning breakthrough by Dr. Yamanaka, where... Um, where with a set of uh, instructions or mRNA factors, they were able to take an adult aged cell and bring it all the way back into an embryonic stage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that in itself just shows that there is such a thing as age reversal. The issue there and, and why that in itself is not a longevity-centric uh, uh, intervention is that in the whole process of reversing the age, the cell also forgets what it's meant to do. Mm. So if you do that in a skin cell, it goes all the way back to an embryonic stage and it forgets to be a skin cell. It no longer performs the functions of a skin cell like generating elastins and collagen, et cetera, et cetera. So I I often um, liken it to, let's say you're in your 60s and you are a successful professional Right, and now somebody snaps their fingers, and you're back to being a one-week-old mm-hmm. baby. Mm-hmm. Not only do you forget, or you rejuvenate it, but there's a there's a problem there. You forgot that you were a successful professional. You forgot everything you learned in high school, in college, in university. 
So the 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 longevity intervention that now we're focusing on in the longevity field today is called epigenetic reprogramming, which is the decoupling of identity loss with the with the rejuvenation enhancement. So there's now different companies that are looking uh, to bring back in the in that example an an aged skin cell to a younger version of itself. So in the in the example of the 80 year old, you take the 80 year old and you bring him back to you know being 20, 21, right? What we believe is the most optimal youthful age, uh, and uh, and that skin cell still remembers to be a skin cell, except it now performs like it used to when it was young. One of the companies that is uh, at the forefront of that is is Term Biotechnologies out of uh, Stanford Lab in in Mountain View, California. Okay, so maybe you can just help give us the the lay of the land of longevity tech and longevity startups, right? Because um, from from my knowledge that I've, I've been able to gather here, uh, the idea of like a longevity community and, and research efforts, very young. Uh, it's maybe only a couple decades. So now that we are in the era of 2023, can you kind of place us in history? I know there's a long future of longevity ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Where are we in the world of longevity research and, and product and, and all of this? Like, where are we in, in history? So longevity research is, ex- is, is very mature, right? In, in 2000, just to give you a kind of a chronological uh, or to center us in a chronological spectrum, um, Early 2000, it was immoral to study aging. Mm. 2005, um, the Methuselah Mouse Prize uh, for extending the, the the lifespan of a mouse was very successful in showing the scientific community that if you could do it in a mouse, then you could certainly do it in a human because the mouse has always been this kind of like gateway into what works in a human, at least from a regulatory perspective. Um, so a lot of really good science has, has happened since. Uh, people have had permission to believe that they can not just delay aging, but reverse aging. There's aging institutes all over the world. There are um, a lot of really good um, nonprofit and academic institutions. The best ones in the world that are now, they have an arm. Uh, so about about 2020. 2014, 2015, all of this researched uh, technologies and all of this intervention started becoming a little bit more mature so that you could start creating companies around it. Mm. So in 2020, uh, in 2016, all the way up until now, you're seeing an explosion of uh, interventions that are now making their way into the 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 professional investment world, right? Anything from a small molecule into gene therapies, into cell therapies, they're now getting backed mm-hmm. by uh, VCs. Uh, and then slowly you're, you're starting to see uh, the, the big pharma, right? Uh, coming in and, and developing different little units of, of longevity units to, to try to understand how these technologies, new technologies are going to be deployed not just in the mainstream, but in their current pipeline as well. So there's a lot of interest because, um, you know, Longevity is trying to do this moonshot thing, and they're actually generating platforms that are useful even for non-longevity applications. Uh, We have several of our companies that in trying to address aging, they're cancer becomes almost like a very simple thing to do. Uh. And, uh, And that's how... 
the in the current landscape to answer your question is a lot of these longevity companies are integrating currently into the the regulatory environment and to the current investment environment by deploying solutions to things that people understand already, like cancer, like Alzheimer's, like, um, you know, uh, osteoarthritis and, and heart disease, things like that. Yeah, so it's not just operating inside of its own vertical, its own silo. It's being able to find ways. It's probably helpful uh, just to have that integrated with pre-existing companies and pre-existing uh, like domains of knowledge. But just to really uh, make sure I understand the answer, uh, it sounds like actual applications, actual interventions are are already known, they're known science and we know how to do them. Mm -hmm. And now we're at the point of VC investment going into these systems to try and scale them out to make them like ready for consumers. Is that where we are? I, I would say not only that, we're at the point where professional big funds beyond VCs even, mm -hmm. you know, these are 50 to $150 million check writers and above are bringing in money so that these technologies can go in human, mm -hmm. which is, to me, being or having been in longevity for 12 years, it's is the holy grail. Is where is the product? You know, people have been talking about longevity for a long time, but still today, the best thing I could do is eat well and exercise, and right. maybe take rapamycin and right. metformin. But uh, I want next generation products, and this is what a lot of these companies are now creating and focusing on: is taking all this next gen. Uh, intervention into the clinic, into humans, and that in itself is going to allow uh, the longevity space to just flourish tremendously. Yeah, sure. Let's try to make longevity a little bit more real for the listeners and, and also for myself. We mm -hmm. talked about the idea of um, epigenetic, uh, epigenetic, uh, what is it? Reprogramming. Reprogramming that allows us to take off, shave off the years and sounds like uh, shave off specific amounts of years going back to a specific time. Uh, and we just use, are talking about that in the concept of a single cell, Correct. which just means that if you can do that in a single cell, like can you do that for the whole body? Like, how, how does this work? Can you make it a little bit more real for, for listeners? Sure. Um, so, in, in the long run, you do want a systemic approach, right? You want to be able to go in, get some kind of injection or some kind of IV drip system that goes all over your body and starts rejuvenating across different right. types of cells and such. Unfortunately... That is that is not the best way to get to market. Sure. The best way to get to market is to pick something very simple or very needed and and go after it and show the FDA and other regulatory bodies that that there is rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. So a company like Turnbio has assessed two big markets to go after. One of them is dermatology. Mm -hmm. So they'll be able to go into your skin maybe with some microneedling with the help of dermatologists and start rejuvenating the dermis. Mm -hmm. And that dermis eventually comes up into the epidermis and you'll end up seeing like uh, the, the results that we're expecting is that your skin is going to get thicker. It's going to get more, more youthful. So mm -hmm. uh, the way it's moisturized, the way collagen and, and elastins are shown, the way you, your actual normal skin color shows up. Mm -hmm. If you go to the beach, uh, you're going to have better protection against the sun. Mm -hmm. um, you're just going to have a, a much more youthful skin. Mm -hmm. And skin is the largest organ in your body. So that's that's the 
the main thing uh, right there. Um, so the idea is like uh, more targeted applications. And so targeted towards, like specific. you said, microneedling, it sounds like you, it's local to the injection site. Correct. And w- what are we actually in- injecting in- into you, the, right. the, the skin? Yeah, so one of the things we could do is like microneedle into the, the hair, mm-hmm. the scalp, and rejuvenate you know, hair. And uh, that's going to have even some uh, hair coloring applications where gray hair is going to be reversed. Um, but uh, what it's going in is actually this little fat bubbles we like to call lipid nanoparticles mm-hmm. in the in the industry but we've actually created our own novel lipids um, these little fat bubbles are food mm-hmm. like you're giving self cells in your body food they eat fat mm-hmm. that gives them energy to keep doing their thing so we've created new types of cells uh, of of uh, lipids that can go into the cell as food. Um, and inside that cell, it, it, inside that lipid that goes into the cell is a, a cocktail, mm. a rejuvenation cocktail, which is ultimately uh, mRNA factors. Now, Turnbio, this epigenetic reprogramming company created, uh, they, they use synthetic biology, Symbio, mm. to create this uh, very specific, safe, um, controllable mRNAs, type of mRNAs called TURNAs, turnus, mm. um, and that's what it is. It's it's a it's it's a set of instructions inside a fat bubble, becomes food for the cell. The cell eats it, and while while it's is digesting the food, this set of instructions go into the 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 cell, and the cell. It starts performing the instructions, right? So, for example, if you go to the doctor, the doctor says, "Hey, you know, you may want to sleep better, drink more water, uh, eat healthier, exercise A, Y, and Z." Right? right. So that's what we're doing at a cellular level. We're telling the cell to do different things that ultimately are structural changes to the cell. The cell kind of relaxes, right, and then tightens up, and Going through that process, the cell rejuvenates itself because the cell is able to remember how it used to read your DNA. Mm. Now, this is epigenetic reprogramming. We're not changing your DNA. We're just reminding the cell to read your DNA in a much better way. Um, So it's very safe um, from what we've seen. And uh, we're hoping that, you know, when we go into human studies, we can even show this safety level that is unmatched by any other uh, similar technology, uh, such as like the mRNA vaccines that had some safety issues and toxicity issues. Well, all that, if you can think of it, that was like version, you know, the the beta version mm-hmm. of, of any kind of mRNA technologies. Now you're getting to mRNA therapeutics, that this is all things that we have optimized for safety because we know it's important to, um, in in rejuvenating someone, you don't want to hurt them, right? right. It's counterintuitive to, to do that. Right. And just to unpack the name, uh, epigenetic reprogramming. This is actually taking back, uh, taking me back to my biology days. Epigenetics means above genetics, right? And so it's it's like this um, layer above your DNA 
that chooses what parts of your DNA to turn on and off. And my intuition from what you said is that um, uh, the ability to read the DNA decays over time, and that is perhaps uh, the right. what aging is. And so uh, epigenetic reprogramming is like just sharpening the lens, perhaps, of your epigenetic layer to read the DNA better. That's that's a great way of putting it, by the way. Thank you. Great job. Um, I like to, I mean, we... Some of us understand, and maybe a lot of your listeners understand, like computers, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think of your DNA as the zeros and ones, right? The binary code that makes the computer at, at the the base, very basic happen and, 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 and start mm -hmm. up and all these programs are at an epi level, sure. right? right. Uh, at a, a, you start having all these coding systems that make use of this binary and eventually, as your computer goes through times of space, it gets slower. Mm -hmm. Like functions decay, the environment, like Trojans and viruses and all this start attacking it. Mm -hmm. uh, not only that, the hardware becomes a little bit sloppy as well. Um, and then you have you know, issues with how that information is read properly. So every now and then you'll have your optimization uh, programs that come in and start deleting and, right. and, and doing all these things. So maintenance work, right? Yeah. Maintenance work. Right. So that's that's what we're doing. We're not changing the zeros and ones, um, but we're we're reminded we're coming in with the you know with the cleaner, right? Mm -hmm. And the and the antivirus to come in and just get rid of all the crud and all the all the de and doing the debugging mm -hmm. so that uh, your computer runs as optimally as possible. Yeah. And just to really drive this point home, the idea is that this works <laughs> at your DNA level and your DNA is you. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, this is kind of surre uh, like uh, surreal to really try and like uh, think about. It's like, okay, we can make our skin better. I can I can imagine that. Like I can imagine my, my skin being 10 years ago, mm -hmm. the hair, et cetera, my eyesight get better. Mm -hmm. But then when you apply it holistically to the whole body, like that's I think kind of when it gets weird for folks is like so imagine you take uh, some 70 year old and you do this program like do they just like rewind back to 20 years old do we have any indication that we have an answer for this uh, so you know it's it's good not to give an answer that is you know absolute but what I would probably see is um, what I would probably say from an speculatory perspective is uh, you you start seeing a lot of benefits on, on how you feel and how your body performs. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, most of the things that are important about aging happen internally, mm -hmm. right? Anything from like, oh man, I used to eat a burger and when I was young, it, it, it meant nothing right. to me. Right. Now that I'm old, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't use the restroom. I'm yeah. feeling foggy like all that grease is just right. making me feel bogged yeah, down yeah gotta take a nap oh yeah, yeah. Right. so so that's what we'll probably see a lot of the rejuvenation happen internally mm. but what i'm most excited is you know eventually we'll rejuvenate the brain so neuroplasticity all of a sudden you'll be able Ooh, to cool. remember things uh, or, or learn new things right. right one of the things of against longevity is like oh well you, you're going to be the same person that you've always been and then nothing's going to change well no our goal is to rejuvenate neuroplasticity if you want to learn a new language when you're in you know in your 90s then do it right if you want to switch careers uh so another thing is that the thymus 
and the way our, our, our bodies regulate hormones, right? Mm -hmm. That could be a, a lifestyle issue, right? Anyone that, or any female that goes through menopause knows how difficult that can be. Or all humans that went through like your teenage years where your hormones were just going all crazy yeah. know how unsettling that could be. Well, that doesn't change as we grow. And, and there's people who, for example, um, can't control their weight simply because of the way their thyroid is is maintaining different things. So um, there are certain systems and certain organs in your body that will give you a much better yield from a rejuvenation perspective. Uh, of course, you'll have your your liver, your lungs, uh, your eyesight definitely is a, a big one, and your hearing. Uh, so. Yeah, I think I think overall it's going to be a slow effect, but eventually you start seeing, uh, you know, your skin get thicker. Uh, you can now run a marathon. Mm -hmm. um, your your knees don't hurt as much, uh, or you're no longer a candidate for knee replacement surgery because your hyaline cartilage is 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 regrowing. Right. Uh, your synovial fluid is able to. Um, prevent you from falling because that's another thing that happens when we age is so many falls take place and then that affects the way a, a person uh, lives their, their life when they're in their 80s or 90s. So all these things are probably not going to be super evident. You're not going to come out and, and going to look like a 20-year-old you know, within minutes, mm -hmm. but you're slowly going to have this rejuvenation effect. The dosage is still yet to be determined. Mm -hmm. So we don't know if you're going to be taking this every week, every right. month, every right. year, every 10 years. Our goal is to um, get get someone to a point where they're rejuvenated and maintain them as long as possible. Um, but um, but yeah, that that all remains a mystery that is exciting to mm -hmm. to go after and look into the answers for. Yeah, certainly. And uh, there was a podcast that Vitalik was on that uh, the clip clip of this went viral when he said it, that he thinks that somebody's already alive today that's going to live to to be three thousand to to the year three thousand. Uh, do you also believe something along this nature? That that's rooted on something called longevity escape velocity. So my my. Um, the CEO at the Methuselah Foundation, my business partner, David Goble, actually came up with his idea and it was uh, po uh, postulated publicly and popularized by Aubrey de Grey, mm -hmm. which is the, the goal that, you know, eventually interventions that are going to help you keep living longer are going to come out at, at such a fast pace that you're going to be aging and then taking all these products to help you de-age at a much faster rate than than you're ever going to be able to to get older. If you can stay, if you can keep yourself alive to the point where technology has advanced to the de-aging peak, where our technology allows us to de-age, then you're good. Like, yeah, you've made exactly. it <laughs> exactly. And that's that's ultimately the the goal. I think that is something that is very uh, possible. Mm -hmm. I think in five years from now until 2030. It's, it's a very critical stage. Sure. So uh, for all those who are thinking of supporting longevity and biotech, now is the time. Because mm -hmm. I think in the, in the next seven years, we're going to see a lot of these interventions go into humans. And it's those, those uh, interventions and the success of them in humans that are going to dictate whether or not, um, you know, maybe you or, or, or I or Vitalik himself are going to be able to live to be 3,000 years. So um, I say it's possible. Mm -hmm. I think I'll be more bullish in 2030. Sure.
Sure. How how will this um, industry, the longevity industry, impact listeners and people today? Like what what's what's or the, or the first? Like what's going to happen in the near term? That the look what's the first few products that are going to come out of this industry? Um, so right now there's a, a rush towards creating longevity clinics, and unfortunately, I've I've. I feel there's a there's a, it's just a little bit more of a hype than anything else. Mm. Like you look at a lot of longevity clinics, and it, all they do is just like vitamin B infusions, right? Whether or not it's a longevity uh, treatment, that remains to be seen. But there are other clinics that actually have hard signs behind it. Like if you look at Everest Health, Everest Bio, um, you know they have eight years of of creating the Methuselah protocol and, and trying to figure out what actually works for you as a uh, specific individual, not as an average of a population. Um, so I think that's the first thing you'll start seeing is longevity clinics everywhere, people trying to really maximize things that could work today. And then they're also going to become the distribution channels for all these next-gen therapies, right? So, um, you know, if you really do want to make use of the best thing out there already for you, I would say go to one of these reputable longevity clinics and uh, what you'll see is you'll get, you know, normal healthcare, but instead of saying, okay, see you in a year, right? They'll say, okay, let's figure out throughout the next year, every four months or every three months, who you are, mm -hmm. how we can optimize your vitamins, how we can optimize your, your lifestyle so that you can become the best version of yourself as we wait for this next generation uh, therapies. And it makes sense. For example, the person that you are during the winter changes to the person that you are during the summer. Right. And this is something that most doctors don't even care about because they only see you once a right. year. And they're, they're, they're pushed to see so many people during a day so they don't really have the time even if they want to help you. Mm -hmm. So... I do think that right now there's a paradigm shift. A lot of people actually our age are, are not just looking at life expectancy, mm -hmm. like, oh, how long are we going to live for? But we're also looking at a health expectancy, meaning, you know, I've gone to a couple of doctors where I said, you know, the quality of care you're giving me is subpar. Like I can get better care just by looking at WebMD, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I don't feel demeaned or right. like, you know, a lot of doctors out there think you're you're dumb and and they treat you like very poorly unfortunately or they're just trying to push some pills because mm -hmm. they get some kind of kickback and uh, I'm not saying everybody's this this way but it's unfortunately the system that we currently live in so it's it's going to be a health expectancy paradigm where people are just going to give their 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 money to the clinics that are really going to spend the half an hour to an hour to really optimize you for who you are uh, as an individual, not as not as a, not as a statistic, uh, some kind of average. What, what's holding back the longevity industry? Like, what's what are the obstacles that uh, longevity as a as a as an academic study or as a uh, an industry needs to get over? Uh, there's a there's a few things that are holding back, not just longevity, mm -hmm. but um, the next generation therapies. The very first thing I would say is delivery. There's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening at the lab level, at an academic level, that will never make it into a human mm -hmm. because mice are not humans, right? Actually, the predictability of whether or not something works in a human, um, it's, it's not very good um, when you use a mouse model. Mm -hmm. Like dogs are allergic to chocolate. What if dogs were the getting item 
for whether or not you and I could eat chocolate. Sure. I'd be very upset because, <laughs> if, you know, it, it's right. toxic to dogs doesn't mean it's going to be toxic to humans. Mm -hmm. And as, as, as humans, we don't really know what things didn't make it to us mm -hmm. simply because they didn't work in a mouse. Right. So in a way, that's a kind of a species insanity mm. to have a, 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 another being be the gateway for what's good for us. Mm -hmm. So I like, for example, uh, uh, a new uh, initiative called the Animal Free, uh, Animal Free Precision Medicine, so AFPM.bio, that it's aiming at creating architecturally correct 3D printed human tissue mm -hmm. that is able to be very predictive to within like 90% of whether or not it's going to help you and I, humans. Mm -hmm. So human tissue to help see whether or not humans can actually benefit from a certain type of drug. So I think changing that paradigm is important so that we don't just help longevity, but also help medicine as a whole. Number two, delivery, right? Um, just because something cool happens um, at an mRNA or DNA level doesn't mean we can put it inside your body. Your body is actually very well made to prevent any kind of foreignness sure, or right, foreign yeah. object mm -hmm. from coming into your body. So it's going to be attacked. It's going to be uh, prevented. So if there's a really cool set of mRNA instructions, uh, we need to put them in a fat bubble that works really well. So... That is a nascent technology or it's a, it's a industry that needs to be developed significantly. I know at least 20 different longevity companies that are going to go into that roadblock as soon as they start thinking of going into, into humans. Right. And number three is regulation. Regulation meaning uh, the, the understanding that, um, you know, aging is a disease. Right. Um, and making that a, a well-known fact for regulators so that they can fast-track a lot of these life-saving technologies, I think it's, it's going to be important. But we're th very thankful to uh, the FDA Modernization Act that just passed this, this December. Mm -hmm. I think the FDA now, by law, has to go ahead and modernize and, and start looking at how to put together uh, programs like the Warp, uh, Warp Speed program right that gave us the vaccine well there's a way to make a drug go through the whole regulatory environment in a year right so i think the fda needs to really sit down and figure out what the business model is that going to be right the business model up until now worth billions of dollars is let's let's take five to ten years for any drug to go through and a lot of people make a lot of money in, in between um, but i think there's a way to make even more money by fast-tracking it, but maybe creating some kind of royalty model, sure. maybe paying for safety, right? Uh, that that could be a good thing. Uh, but those are the three big things, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and how would uh, longevity, in addition to all of the awesome things that might be able to do for us on an age standpoint, just impact other areas of medicine and the healthcare system? Like, what's the conversation like there? Uh, that's a that's a great point um i think costs driving costs mm -hmm. down i think it's important i think uh there's a paper uh that came out explaining that 47 trillion dollars is what humanity is going to spend by 2030 mm -hmm. every year on taking care of you know an aged population okay. 
47 trillion. I mean, if you give me 47 trillion dollars, I, I could do a lot with that, <laughs> yeah, right? right yeah. Uh, so uh, it, just from an economic perspective, and by the way, I'm an economist by training, uh, I think not just other areas of healthcare, but just other areas of the GDP are right. going to be improved. And the pandemic really showed this. If you have a population that is sick, you're going to lose trillions and trillions of dollars in actual value add for, for from society mm -hmm. as a contribution. So... Like, never mind the growth in GDP that gets from having a working population, right? Exactly, exactly. And um, a population that is more productive, a population that has neuroplasticity to invent more, uh -huh. a population that is not worried about having to work, you know, seven days a week, but now they've been given more time to kind of reflect um, about what they can do with their life. Uh, what's the best way to, to move things forward? How do we... You know, how do we use our time wisely? I think it's it's a really good, they're good existential questions and philosophical questions that only longevity is going to enable. Um, yeah. Sergio, maybe you could just take a, a moment to tell us about yourself and, and the companies that, that you're working with. And, sure. and also just if uh, listeners want to learn more, where should they go? Um, so thanks for thanks for that. Um, I I would. I like to help different companies uh, create products. Uh, in the context of longevity, I've been uh, working with TurnBio, so www.turn.bio, Lucadia Therapeutics, uh, LucadiaTX.com. Lucadia has a novel approach to solving Alzheimer's. My grandma died with Alzheimer's after fighting for 17 years, and I became indignant. Um, at when I realized how much time and money has been had been wasted right. battling unsuccessfully Alzheimer's. And my grandma was not a human being halfway through the whole process. And yet society paid for her to get the best the best healthcare right. that was potentially offered to her. And uh, I became enamored with disrupting healthcare much like Uber disrupted transportation, Amazon, the retail space, et cetera. You know, this is prime mm -hmm. for disruption and it's it's going to do a tremendous amount of good. Mm -hmm. So that's who I am at, at, at the core, but I've also been volunteering um, for, for a long time uh, with foundations and nonprofits. So the Methuselah Foundation, uh, I created an investment fund for them called the Methuselah Fund in 2016. Uh, we invested in different companies and helped them create uh, new products and, and new innovations. Thankfully, none of them have fell apart, you know, knock, knock on wood, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but, you know, we sold one of them that we started with $150,000. We sold it for a, a deal worth $400 million. So a merger and acquisition deal with uh, 3D Systems. And this company called Volumetric could create whole, the technology could eventually create whole new printed organs. Mm. So if you ever need a kidney transplant right. and you're no longer able to be part of a a you know, a transplant list because you're too old or because, you know, whatever that may be, you know, this company is going to be able 
to pre 3D print you an organ that is yours with your own cells. It's not going to be rejected. And so the whole organ transplanting model uh, is going to be fixed, hopefully, with this. Um, It's a partnership between United Therapeutics and 3D Systems, and I really have really good hopes there for them. Um, Ocean Biotechnologies uh, and Oncosenex, which is their their cancer arm. I think they're incredibly important company for senolytic approach. Uh, As you get older, you get more more of these zombie cells all throughout your body. I think it's one liter by the time you're 80 that's just roaming around, eating Mm -hmm. your nutrients and just consuming all the good stuff from your body. You want that to be gone just as much as you want cancer cells to be gone. I think that's a really cool uh, project as well. And then we have Exterma, which are trying to make organs um, live longer and also to create cryopreservants mm-hmm. that are going to be non-toxic, uh, which is a huge problem today with academia. A lot of the materials that are being used are toxic. So mm-hmm. there's potentially a case to be said that all the institutions around the world could be generating better science if they use better materials right. that are not toxic. Um, uh, Vician Biosciences as well. Um it's quite the list. Yeah, yeah you've got yeah, your, yeah. your hands everywhere. A, a little bit. Um, and then also uh, Winsantor, which is regrow your, your nerve endings, which mm. is really cool for neuropathy and mm. pain. Um, and uh, a couple of other companies that are in stealth mode. Uh, one, of, one of the fun ones uh, is actually through the Methuselah Foundation, Vitalik uh, donated 43% of the world supply of this uh, fun meme token community called right. Dojilon Mars. Dojilon Mars, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's on the long tail of dog tokens for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually, I don't know if it still is, but I think it was Dogecoin, Shiba, and Dojilon Mars, uh-huh. which is number three in the world. It's, it's incredible, uh, fun community, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting story for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for your guiding us through all of this uh, crazy, crazy topics. Uh, th- this is uh, only like one of many, many longevity topics. So thank you for, for walking us through the top of the rabbit hole, and I hope to continue going down it throughout this week. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Introducing Polygon 2.0, the value layer for the internet. For too long, the limitations of blockchains have held back app development and stifled user adoption. The internet allows anyone to create and exchange information. What's missing is a value layer that lets anyone exchange, store, and program value. That's where Polygon 2.0 comes in. Polygon Labs has unveiled a series of innovations that will radically alter the Polygon ecosystem and Web3 as a whole. By leveraging groundbreaking ZK innovations, such as Polygon ZK EVM, the next iteration of the best class Plonky 2 proving system and a first-of-its-kind ZK-powered interoperability layer, Polygon 2.0 will give users and devs unlimited scalability and unified liquidity. Right now, there is a Polygon improvement proposal regarding a potential ZK-powered upgrade of Polygon Proof-of-Stake. If approved, Polygon Proof-of-Stake would become a Layer 2 ZK-EVM Validium. So make your voice heard on this proposal by joining the Polygon Discord today. You have a chance to help the Polygon community give the internet the value layer it deserves. Hiring people worldwide, paying them in crypto, providing them access to benefits, it all so complex. But it doesn't have to be. Complying with labor laws, payroll rules, tax obligations, and crypto regulations in 
every country that you employ someone is difficult, time consuming, manual, and costly. And it's drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. But there is good news. Toku is here. Toku is the first employment and compensation platform for the crypto industry that makes this easy. Toku helps you hire employees or contractors and pay them in fiat or crypto legally, compliantly, and with all the taxes handled in over a hundred different jurisdictions. So whether you're an early stage company with just a team of two, or you're an enterprise with 200, Toku has a solution that meets your needs. Toku is already working with the leading companies in the space, Protocol Labs, Hedera, Gitcoin, and many more. So transform your employment and token payroll operations with Toku. You can reach out to Toku at toku.com slash bankless or click the link in the show notes. Bankless Nation, we are here at Zuzal and I'm talking to Michael Greer of Humanity. Michael, what's up? Not much. Great to be here. Michael, I first met you at the 8 a.m. cold plunge and you have been there yeah. every single day. Been best friends ever since. Yeah. Best friends ever since. Uh, so you, you're at an interesting intersection between all of the various topics that are being talked about at Zuzalu. The, the intersection of longevity, which we had a longevity week. I think we're going to have another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also AI. Yep. Uh, so that's a fun little place to operate in. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about how you stumbled your way into that world. Yeah, and honestly, I think you, you can throw the the public goods and the, uh, the the crypto into the mix there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I started with I think a, a lot of people in health tech start is they they have someone close to them or themselves have kind of a really tragic you know health event mm. that kind of uh, you learn the cliche that if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Right. Um, and so I had people close to me find out really late about cancer. I think a lot of people unfortunately have had that experience, and that threw me for a loop. Because I was in my 20s, I had this big business success, you know, this dating site that got quite large. So you're feeling like you can conquer the world and then you can't do anything mm-hmm. for the, you know, the people sitting right next to you. Um, and so I went down many rabbit holes, basically trying to figure out like early detection of, of disease, uh, of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, that led me towards genetics uh, because of things called liquid biopsies that are now coming to fruition, which is a great space. But... When I kept on going further, I went out to the valley. I took over operations at a consumer VPN. I started meeting people that started giving me this. It, it sounds like a very simple idea, but I didn't have it in my head before, which was there's something better than early detection of disease. You can actually monitor the whole body going towards higher probability of disease. Right. More it, susceptible. It's like one step in front of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because what, what the whole, I mean... We don't need to go into the whole healthcare system, but I think most people that spend a lot of time in the healthcare system call it sick care now, because uh, we we focus at that end stage where it's not too late, but it's like the person's already pretty diseased, and you're trying to save them, right? And you're saving them in the most expensive part of that trajectory, and also the part of the trajectory where they are suffering the most. Yeah. And so that is the part that the current institution of medicine is prolonging the most. Yeah. And. And it's good that they're there. The problem is not that they're do, they're giving sick care. That's great, and the, and they do an amazing job in hospitals doing that. The problem is that we don't have a lot of emphasis on much earlier, right? <laughs> in that in that process, and so a lot of people have well, almost everybody has the intent to be to stay healthy or to be healthier. Mm-hmm. But there's just very few tools out there that can actually lead them in the right direction. And so, eventually, once I had that idea in my head, I could. I don't get excited about stuff until I can really understand like how the whole operation works. And then I got excited. And so that's why we, we created Humanity. Um, and Humanity basically allows you to monitor your rate of aging, mm-hmm. which is basically your probability of disease. Is it going up or down? And then basically guides you towards slowing it down. 
Sure. So across our user base, we're looking at all the users, what they're doing. Then we're finding users like you. So, you know, your kind of biological sex, your age, you know, different attributes of you and seeing what seems, what group of actions is seeming to positively affect this endpoint. And that endpoint is this prediction of future health. And so what group of actions is actually making that, that prediction that you're going to be healthier in the future? Oh, those are good actions for that type of person. Let's tell everybody right. that that's the type of person. Hey, you should do this and then see if it works. Right? Yeah, there's a lot of magic behind the scenes uh, at the app that I definitely want to d dive into. And we'll we'll see if we can get some visuals up on the screen as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, first, I still want to zoom out and just like, can yeah. you give us like a high level just mission statement for mm -hmm. you and humanity? And also tell us just a little bit more about the is ought gap between the current institution of health and mm -hmm. where you think it would be more optimum if the institution of health progressed towards. Yep. I'm going to, sometimes I'm going to stop you and ask for definitions of some sure. of these things. Sure. <laughs> the, the is ought is a... Is ought gap. Yeah. yeah. So the is, the is ought gap is like currently... Ha have the, and have nots or... Uh, the currently the world of medicine is one way. Okay. And I think you as mm -hmm. a result oh, of... Ought you, to be. Okay. Ought, gotcha. It ought to be some other way. Cool. So where is it and what like ought that. it be? And then yeah. like your own personal mission statement with what you're building here yeah, at, yeah. at Humanity. Cool. Uh, yeah, so our, our, we try to boil down our mission to real simplicity. We want to give a billion years of health back to humans by 2030. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's funny. So at Bankless, yeah. sorry, just a slide <laughs> cast, we talk about we want to help a billion people go bankless. That's been our line. <laughs> <laughs> billion is a nice it's round a, number. A, yeah, it's, Why a, not? it's the largest number that humans can still reason about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, so the consumer VPN that I was running, we got to 900 million users. So like, the, the beauty of the internet is that you can you can actually affect mm -hmm. that many people, right? Um, so that's the mission. We want to get back those billion years, uh, and and very specifically healthy years. Right. So those fully functional or you know mostly fully functional healthy years that we almost all of us enjoy living, um, and so that's that's the mission and and kind of what we have right now. I would say the biggest thing, if I was to cut straight to the chase, we don't we don't measure our health. Right. Uh, so those that are real seekers and kind of out there, like early adopters trying to, you know, biohack and all that kind of stuff, very few of them even measure their health. Mm -hmm. They kind of, they're, they're content consumers and there's a lot of great content out there and you're trying different things, but there's not, you're not monitoring yourself over time to see if, if the group of things that you're doing is actually moving you towards what most of us are going for, which is we want to be healthier for longer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, what the system doesn't have right now is is measuring. The cool thing, though, is we've just entered maybe the last you know five years. I would say we've entered a time where almost everybody has a device on them, which can monitor their health. Right. So, like our mainstay of monitoring your health as a user is your movement pattern. Right. And so, if you keep your phone in your pocket or near you throughout the day, we'll be able to at least give you some probably you know pr prediction of your future health. If you have a wearable. Right. You know, we could feed in the heart rate. Right. There's so there's so many out there. And you're saying that mm -hmm. even the very blunt tool of your phone in your pocket still can yeah. provide sufficient data. Yeah. But then like we were we're many years into the Fitbit revolution. Mm -hmm. Now we've got the Apple watches. Yeah. Uh, there's the whoop band. There's mm -hmm. the aura ring. Yeah. There's the sleep eight mattress that actually tracks you when you when you're sleeping. So there's yeah. even other non wearable devices that yeah. are inputting data. Yep. And so I think this is the industry, the, the sector that that humanity is really tapping into. There's all this data out there. Yeah. And now we can start to apply it exactly and and apply it in almost leave the um, leave the kind of clinical trial system and these kind of like small research study things behind in a way 
because the whole the, the secondary problem. So that was the big, you know, right. is uh, the secondary problem is that we because I think in the past it was easier to have one common marketing message. Mm. So if you're a public health official and it makes sense, like if you're a public health official, like you can't go out and say, hey, there's 20 instructions <laughs> to to follow. You, you just say, hey, sugar is bad. Right. And you just hope that, you know, that message can, you know, get as far as, you, you know, it will go. Right. And the problem is each of us is different mm-hmm. and the combination of actions actually affects the outcome. And so to give you an example, so like if you're if, if you're a certain type of person, which which I am l- lucky for me, don't be jealous. I can eat as much chocolate cake. <laughs> it's not going to spike my sugar. Hmm. I've, I've, I've experimented multiple times with continuous glucose monitors. It just won't do it. I'll, I'll have to try a couple more times to make sure that the results are, are sound. Uh, but the normal person would say, hey, you know, that's unhealthy. You shouldn't right. be doing that, right? Uh, and so each of us needs to start measuring ourselves so that we can actually know, you know, what's actually working and what's not. Uh, and, the, and so the getting away from, you know, how do you, how do you get away from that real need, which was these simple messages, mm-hmm. to actually applying a much more personalized thing? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't I don't want to say everything's in your pocket, but like, again, we have this great delivery service mm-hmm. that we unfortunately stare at a lot during the day. Right. And that thing can give you very personalized stuff. And, and we and we actually are unhappy when, it, you know, we talk about how personalized it is. These these ads know too right. much about me. Right. That same thing, knowing everything about you can give you specific health knowledge. Right. So. Right. We can start to to. Uh, turn it around and start to use it for our benefit. And I think this is where just perhaps the AI conversation starts Mm -hmm. because the idea is when so many people have their phones, Mm -hmm. everyone has their phones and even uh, not as many people have phones as has wearables, but a large number of people have wearables. We have a ton of data. And in their closet too. And now they're taking them out to use with the app. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yeah. So like I've, I've had an Apple watch and I've loosely worn it here and there mm-hmm. but since coming here to Zuzalu doing the morning cold plunges going on the runs mm-hmm. having this app to actually tell me what's going on with that data yep. all of a sudden my rigorousness about how frequently I'm wearing this wearable has yep. like tripled I'm gonna I'm gonna cut this part of it I'm just gonna send that to Apple feature us more please <laughs> <laughs> yeah official iOS partnership <laughs> app right we're selling watches okay so we have all this data we have mm-hmm. way more data than I think we know what to do with and maybe that's even like one of the big problem statements we have more data than we actually can apply to uh, actually lo- know what to do with it when it comes to our health behavior mm-hmm. but I think this is where perhaps the AI conversation uh, starts and yeah. just the big data conversation starts so yeah. can you walk us down that rabbit hole yeah, and I think what you're what you're touching on is also I, I think we've had a few years. I, I, I think all this stuff just puts it in the in the mainstream. So I, I don't think any of this was like a wrong direction. But we had a few years of like, hey, we have a bunch of data on you, and here's some cool graphs. Right. And yeah, yeah. and I think people started to get a little bit of like, okay, well that was cool, but Graphing it didn't really help fatigue, me. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And they're like, okay, you know, you can only look at your HRV for so long and then you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. That's your heart rate variability, yeah, by yeah. the way. <laughs> uh, and so I, I think, sorry, what was the question? I went uh, off well, so now that we have uh, other tools, yeah. uh, not just wearables, not just data, but we have AI and yeah. lots of data, yeah, what yeah. can we do with this? Yeah, so I think that's where the cool, the cool thing that happens is when you have enough of this data, no matter if, if data is noisy, no matter if data is, you know, interspersed and you're not getting it every day. The great thing about AI is that it actually can just still 
It looks at all that data and it can find all the relationships. Mm -hmm. I mean, deep learning is about finding the, you know, the kind of a, a relationships and associations between multivariant systems and just taking that as knowledge. And then in many cases, it's applied in different ways. You can, you can fold all the proteins in the world or you can, you know, it, it's that deep knowledge, that mm -hmm. deep learning that gets that knowledge of how these variables are associated. And so that's, that's kind of the, the byproduct of deep learning, but it's actually the beautiful thing that now we're applying to health, mm -hmm. which is you can take that knowledge and actually then feed it that you can create an algorithm off of that and then feed it back to the user so they can feed in their, their data mm -hmm. and it will actually give them guidance. The other thing, I don't know if we want to get too deep into it, but we can go off in a tangent. The, um, I think what we're working on also at Humanity and kind of plays into the public good that's, uh, that's happening behind us, a lot of great talks, is we want to find a way, and th there is a way, we want to actually build out a proof of concept of that you can keep the data private, hmm. stays in the same place, the owner of the data is the user, when they want to delete right. it off of that place that they put it, they have full reign to do that, but you're also able to, work, the route we're going is creating synthetic data, so we're basically, deep learning learns all the relationships and then you create fake users that have all those relationships, you can open up that data to then train models on. Hmm. And everybody can do that. The, you know, we, right. we have 150,000 users, but there's, there's health tech companies that have you know, 100 million users, right? Mm -hmm. and, and there's the NHS in the UK and you know, Montenegro health, health system. They can keep their, us their user and patient data completely private, mm -hmm. not anonymize and send it off somewhere, keep it where it is completely private, but still train models on it mm -hmm. and allow researchers to do that, allow anybody to do it. I think that's, now that we have blood in the water with AI, with, you know, ChatGPT just made it completely mainstream, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Now people are like, what else can we do with data? So I think now is the time really that we need to push to open up this data, but mm -hmm. not in, not the real user data, but actually just the learnings from it. So Right. And I really want to drill down on kind of the, the problem of all this data that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, for anyone with a wearable or an Apple, well, I'm sure Android has this too, but if you open up your health app, mm -hmm. you can just like scroll and scroll and scroll <laughs> through all the things that it's measuring, right? It's so, sorry, Apple Health app. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, they're taking they're taking some 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 credit back. Yeah. Uh, so like, yeah, it measures things like your gait imbalance, right? Which leg that you put more mm -hmm. weight on while you walk. Yeah. It measures uh, your heart rate variability, which is very useful. Mm -hmm. It measures how many steps you take. Like mm -hmm. it, it measures everything that it can get its hands on. Mm -hmm. And what the cool thing about the Humanity app is that it actually just boils that down into just like. Are you living longer or are you living shorter? Yep. And that's really the power of applying AI here. It's just consolidate all that data down to one output. Yes. But hopefully, can you like just illustrate the magnitude of the data problem and how AI fixes that? Yeah. And I don't want to be overly positive, but there is the other side of the coin, which is basically these, these platforms, these, these hardware companies, or if they consider themselves hardware companies, uh, their sensors are getting more and more prevalent, more and more people have them, and they're getting better and better, and they're mm -hmm. monitoring more and more stuff. The secondary that you touched on is they're also, and I think this is a place for them to play as well, they're also creating processed values mm -hmm. like, you know, gate instability. Whereas I might not have a person on my team that necessarily is going to be an expert in that. Right. But they create this process, this, this feature that they take out of that data that then we could use, like, I mean, if you're a sports app, you get gate instability. You're like, okay, you're injured. Mm -hmm. Here's, you know, go out in this on, on this route, mm -hmm. right? right? And I think that's so the the there's there's an ecosystem where there's easier and easier ways and cheaper and cheaper ways for people to get this data on themselves. 
then there's an ecosystem that can live within the same player where it's like, how can we process this so you're not just sending, you know, raw accelerometer and gyroscope right. data and then you gotta just learn how to deal with it. Right. It, because it just makes it easier for, you know, people like us, like humanity, to then take that and then we're like, hey, well actually now that it's processed, it's a few kilobytes and we now can do this very cool thing with it, you know. Mm -hmm. So Okay, so when you apply AI to all of this data, can we just unpack a little bit more like what that means? Because yep. uh, in this day and age, we just say, and then we do AI, uh, and so like that's where the variable reward is. You press the button, and, and magic happens. Right, yeah. <laughs> what magic am I going to see next? So how how does how does uh, humanity actually apply AI to produce meaningful results for its users? Yep. And so we're doing something. Uh, I wouldn't say simple, but it's, you know, it's kind of like really good machine learning mm -hmm. on it, which is basically saying what, so we see all these actions that people are taking. And so we take all these values from your, from your wearables, from your, from your phone, we take values from your input. Mm -hmm. You can say what your mood is, you know, if you're, if you're not monitoring your sleep, you can put in, you know, your sleep. So we take some manual input. And so then we just, we just take these all as these are, these are actions. We're not making any judgment on them whatsoever. So a person did these actions, and then we have this prediction that happens every single day using your movement pattern and your heart rate pattern, if you have it. And we're just saying, okay, this prediction, is it predicting that you're gonna be healthier in the future slightly or, or less healthy in the future slightly? Mm. So that's the end point. So you can think of it in traffic navigation, the end point they're trying to look at is time to destination. Right. So they're saying this path takes five minutes, that path takes seven. So we're basically saying, okay, is the prediction of your future health better or worse? And then if it was better, you almost just like label back into that group of actions and say, this seems to be a generally net positive group of actions mm -hmm. for this type of person. Right. So that's where the stratification is the most important. And so you just do that repetitively every single day and you can take time periods. You can start to understand if there's a lag between an intervention. So maybe if you do a cold plunge, we'll see mm -hmm. your prediction of health better in three days and mm -hmm. not immediately right so you start to learn all this from the data but in the end it's it really is exactly like traffic navigation mm -hmm. you're not trying to do a study on side streets versus highways right. you're basically like hey these cars were heading on all these different paths and all these edges put together mm -hmm. made a better endpoint got you there in five minutes instead of seven so okay so uh let's talk about some of the uh, healthy behaviors that are do actually move the needle so we have mm -hmm. all of this data but most of the data is probably trash. Mm -hmm. And some of the data is probably really, really good. You always gotta be careful with that because I think the genetic space played this out very well. They're yeah. like, these, these are gene encoding areas, sure. and then there's a bunch of randomness that you know, throw that stuff out. And they're like, oh shit, that actually, <laughs> Well, nonetheless, really some data is gonna be more valuable than other data, uh, correct? In, in the moment, yes. In the moment, right? Yeah. And so like, maybe we could actually just like zoom out and put humanity aside, we'll, we'll mm -hmm. open up the app in a second. Yep. But just like talk about what are the big behaviors mm -hmm. that do move the needle for people mm -hmm. that can actually be measured by things like our fitness trackers, but yep. just like what, what are healthy behaviors that most people aren't engaging in that mm -hmm. the humanity app or just longevity efforts would tell a user to, to engage with? Yep. So I think there's, there's a bunch in, and it, you need to be monitoring yourself and, and it, the combination is important. Mm -hmm. So I'll keep repeating that throughout, but right. um, the combination and the, the one that probably people, people could understand that they're different and so they, they pick up on that quicker, like, okay, it works for him, but it's not gonna work for me. Uh, but the combination of things is 
makes a big difference. Right. And that means like if you didn't get enough sleep, I'm just making this up. Like if you didn't get enough sleep and then you do a high intensity workout, it might actually be net negative. Hmm. Uh, if you got a bunch of sleep and you did high intensity, it might be very positive, right? Um, and probably also the order of those two things also matters, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Timing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So order you can see so well with nutrition. Right. So if you talk about like blood glucose and it's spiking and that, that being generally bad, at least, you know, according to what we know so far is, you know, if you go for a walk, this is why some of these common public health messages get out there is because for a lot of people, if you go for a walk right after a meal, it drastically lowers any spike that you might have gotten no matter what you ate, hmm. really. Um, and so, yeah, they, they order in the combination. And so what we sorry, I lost the question again. Uh, just what, what are the behaviors that yeah. uh, really move the needle? For, yeah, and, for and what people always want to know. So I'll, I'll list a, I'll list a few. I think uh, from our data, I'll, I'll give it straight from our data. We're actually seeing for some cohorts and you may or may not be in that cohort. So <laughs> please don't take this as a, a prescriptive mm -hmm. thing. In some cohorts, moderate intensity activity seems very has very little impact really and so this kind of like stay in the you know just go for a, a moderate jog uh -huh. for some people from our data so far with 150,000 people seems to not really move the needle and so but the low low intensity which basically means like walking around uh -huh. uh, and possibly kind of low intensity yoga that sort of stuff uh, is is fairly impactful for most of the strata and high intensity has quite a variation in its impact, but is every single strata needs some of it. Interesting. But the moderate for, for I'd say, like we have pretty large different cohorts now, but like, let's say three of those cohorts, I'm, I, I could just see the data in my head right now, like three of them, it just doesn't show up. So, and you said uh, moderate activity doesn't move the needle. Mm -hmm. uh, can you define what that means to move the needle? Like what, what does that mean? So is it impactful in this multivariate analysis, this group of actions that people are taking in a, in a day, mm -hmm. does it seem to be impactful on reducing their probability of future disease? Okay. So that endpoint that we're trying to affect. And that's just based on scientific study that we are looking at for indicators of health? Uh, no, that's that's directly from the data is, mm. is, is saying, yeah, so our prediction that we're getting from your movement pattern and your heart rate pattern mm. on a daily basis, that prediction doesn't seem to be moved, impacted by in, in a couple of the strata sure. by the moderate. And so that means it and you don't want to then immediately take that. But I, and then jump to like, oh, well, that's that's what we thought we'd find. Right. But it is exciting now. I'll, I'll admit it. It's quite exciting to like see the real data now, uh -huh. because I think in the longevity space, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but again, I, this is my own, you know, personal Michael Gear kind of conjecture. Is you know, there are certain things that you trigger in the body when you do high intensity exercise. One of the main ones being a, a hypoxic response, meaning your right. your cells think they're running out of oxygen, mm -hmm. and so they start cleaning up, breaking down misfolded proteins, like doing good stuff that makes your body stronger. Uh, just getting nutrients to your body throughout the day, which is you walking around and not sitting at your desk at your computer, is, you know, it makes a lot of sense from a systems like physics. You know, you're going to more consistently deliver more nutrients to all your cells throughout the day if you're moving and your heart's pumping it just slightly higher and getting the blood around, right? Hmm. And so that makes sense. Moderate, you can't necessarily find a lot of uh, kind of in the very high level longevity kind of framework be like oh it doesn't really do much more than the low intensity because mm -hmm. yes you're moving blood around but 
you probably were moving blood around fine walking around and it's not reaching the point where you're getting a hypoxic response where your cells think they're running out of oxygen and so it makes sense that for some strata you don't you don't see much going on right so, and we would only really be able to know this if we have a lot of data and the models to be able to create these relationships, I'm assuming, right? Yep. And so like one, one question I have is like, going back to like, what does it mean to move the needle? There's one, there's one perhaps way of uh, making a health app, which is going through all of the literature and all of the studies and all yep. the doctors that say, hey, this is good. It's kind of the way that most health apps are made, actually. Right. And then there's another way of doing this, which is just giving uh, models, AI models, a bunch of data and then also cross-referencing that with how healthy these people are, how long they live, mm -hmm. and actually have the AI models determine what is good. Exactly. And then it's, that sounds like kind of more of the approach of the humanity app, where you don't want to actually have like inputs as to what is good or what is bad. Yep. You just want to input a bunch of data and have all of that data create relationships with itself and then have the AI models say like, oh, well, this person's doing all these things and they are living longer mm -hmm. and uh, being, being more healthy but not actually telling the models what health is, allowing the models to determine what health is. Yep. How, how does a model determine what health is? So, and then I, I can go back and give you kind of a, hopefully it'll be interesting, kind of the, uh, the in, inside uh, mm -hmm. story of kind of the, the daily struggle of running a, you know, running a company sure. like Humanity. Um, so the, um, the base truth, and a lot, of, a lot of people are starting to base models on this, and. Mm -hmm. it, it, for different things like drug discovery and, and things like that, and I and I, I I'm a I'm a believer. Like mm -hmm. uh, there's some great people like Kristen Fortney that runs BioAge that kind of turned me onto this idea. But you basically go to biobanks, and biobanks are they're run by governments, they're run by you know ins different institutions around the world. Uh, different countries have them, and biobanks are basically you follow the same people, the same humans, uh, for decades. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of like how do we actually know what's going to happen to the, in the future is solved by, by these biobanks where right. you have a bunch of measurements on these same people in the past. So the UK biobank, which we're built most of our stuff on at the moment, uh, has about 18 years of about 500,000 people where they took a bunch of measurements on those people in the past, 18 years ago and, and, and throughout that time. And then you have the actual what happened to them health-wise, their health records mm -hmm. for the next 18 years. So this person, you know what they look like 18 years ago, and you know that they got cancer, you know, five years into that. So, you know, 13 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's where you can, to predict the future, you only need association, you only need correlation. Right. I think we're all fed that, that meme so many times, we don't, we don't know the difference. Correlation is not yeah. causation, yeah. <laughs> correlation is not causation, but correlation is good enough to predict the future. Right, correlation <laughs> is correlation, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. and, and if, if the same things happen at the same time repeatedly, right. that's good enough to predict the future. Yeah. Right. And so, and so that's what all these models are built on. And, and to, to kind of just maybe emphasize it a bit more uh, to really put it in people's heads is anything you measure on the system, in this case, the human body years ago, becomes a predictor of the future. Right. Of, of varying strengths. Some mm -hmm. will be stronger predictors, like meaning they'll, they'll be more weighted into your prediction. And some will be less, but everything, you know, their their zip code where they live, their 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 movement pattern. So in the mm -hmm. UK biobank, they hooked on accelerometers to these people. Very very good force, you know, foresight. By the way, um, you know, 18 years ago, about 100,000 of them, and and heart rate monitors. And mm -hmm. so that's what our digital is is built on because we know right. the pattern 
of movement second by second, pattern of heart rate second by second for people, and then we know what happened to them in the future so we can make a prediction. Right. Uh, and so that's, that's basically what all these predictions are built on. So one thing that I'm kind of just excited to watch is that we're, uh, I, I would assume the amount of data that we are collecting from our wearables and also the strength and precision of our algorithms both are up only and probably in a, an accelerating fashion. Yeah. And so, and also when there's two things that are accelerating upwards, the, the, what you can get out of that yeah, combinant Oriole is yeah. like, it's like a, it's to the power of two, right? Is mm -hmm. the output of this is, and so yeah. like what I'm thinking I'm excited about is to watch this humanity app develop in strength and power and yeah. significance over time. Mm -hmm. And so like, can you just paint a picture of what you want humanity and what you want this part of the health industry to be like mm -hmm. in five, 10, 15 years as AI gets better, as data gets better? What, what can we do with this? What's the bull case? Yep. I think what we want to be is, we, uh, and yeah, relate this to it here, we, we want to be a beacon to actually show at scale that you can basically take this data and then figure out exactly, you know, how to guide the person with it. Mm -hmm. And so we want, to, we want to show that both it is worthwhile for us to do the little bit of work it takes to basically keep the data private, but start training models on it because, mm -hmm. hey, all these humanity users are getting younger. You know, the, right. the probability of future disease is dropping, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Humanities told me that I started at the app at 30.3 and I'm mm -hmm. now at 29.7. Cold plunge. Cold plunge. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out cold plunge. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I think that's one thing. And then on the side, and especially now that I've been in, you know, at, at Zuzulu, mm -hmm. it's been quite, uh, it's, it's motivated me even more to push because I, I think, like I said, blood's in the water with the AI. Like people now know, mm -hmm. like they feel it. They t they taste the possibilities, right? Mm -hmm. And I think up into the echelons of of, of government, people now un understand it to at least like, hey, there's potential here, right? Right. And so what we want to do is is be basically a beacon to show, hey, you want to start training models. Hey, first of all, you have a bunch of data. So I think sometimes the conversation starts with how do we motivate people to start collecting data? The data's already there. Right. You know, the health systems have a ton of data. Every single health tech company, you know, we have 150,000 users data. Like the data's there. Mm -hmm. How do we unleash that data? Keep privacy of that data. Stop anonymizing it. And, and it, it actually loses people privacy. Keep it private, but start training models on it. Synthetic data is our path. Um, and I think that's, I would love to see, say in five years that we have 100 million users, you know, uh, me and my me and my co-founder have done it multiple times now. We have, we have 100 million users uh, that are using our app, and we want to continually be the best guidance app. Mm -hmm. Like we want to be the best. You know, it, it sounds mundane, but like we want to be the best. You know, traffic navigator, but the best navigator for your health. Right. So the UX, UI, the real behavior the Google change. Google Maps for health is great. It's a great model. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the. We are very good at you know, why we got into this is we're very good at people using an app and, and changing their behavior because of the app. Mm -hmm. All the things that we might not like about some of the, uh, the other, you know, social media apps, like that stuff works to change behavior. Mm -hmm. And we're using that to change health behavior. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we want to do that. But we also want throughout that process to have, you know, Montenegro to have different places start to actually use the data that they have on their servers to actually increase people's, you know, their lives. Right. Certainly. Yeah. And so I'm going to hit record on my phone here and we're going to pull up the, uh, the humanity app. And so, mm -hmm. uh, congrats on actually introducing a new app into my life. That's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> I haven't gotten a new app 
in years now, but wow. like I've been using Honored. Uh, humanity for an, uh, a, uh, ever since coming into Zuzalu. Mm -hmm. So there's four main. Uh, I know I'm showing the screen, but there's no point because you can't see that. <laughs> so like we're gonna put this on on ac the actual screen. There's four main categories: movement, nutrition, mind, and recovery. Uh, and you get points on side on each different one, each different vertical. And the idea is to, I think it's out of 100 points every single day. Yep. And so you want to score as high as possible. I've got 80 points so far, so I got like well 20 done. to go. Well done. I've never gone higher than like 92 or 93, but I still, it's showing me a blue color. Mm -hmm. And I like blue. Yep. It starts off red. But blue feels makes me feel good. Got to get the blue. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, talk. Can you walk us through movement, nutrition, mind, and recovery? How, like, how do you know how many points to allocate to each one, mm -hmm. and how does that how does that math get determined? Yep. So, yeah, like you said really well earlier, we wanted to boil it down to things that are quite easy for the user to follow, and and getting more points in a day, you know, is an easy thing to follow. What we do is we translate, so we figure out how impactful each of these actions will be for your type of person. It's mm -hmm. still quite large strata, uh, you know, 150,000 users, but you know, as we approach a million users, that's, we get more and more personalized. But we see how impactful each of these actions will be, and that then translates into how many points you're gonna get for that type of action. So right? my points are my points, but yep. if I get two points for doing this one activity, that's because yep. that app, weighted me to have those two points, yep. somebody else could uh, be given a different weighting because exactly. of just the data that they have. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so when you're going through your guidance, all very simple stuff. Once once you have that semi-complicated kind of back-end system, very easy to then say, hey, we're just going to raise the guidance to you mm -hmm. in order of the most points. Mm -hmm. And you can scroll through. You can decide, hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm going right. to do that. Right. Uh, you you got to do your meditation. <laughs> I I'm, I skip my meditations. I'm I'm naughty on my meditations. Sorry to call you up. Which is why which is why my mind is my mind part is at the <laughs> lowest, which makes sense because I'm a chronic user of Twitter and other things like this. But you're expanding your mind here at Zuzulu, so yeah, it's, it's all true. good. This is true. Uh, but yeah, so then the that's that's how we apply all the all the science and all the tracking in the back end. Then just gets applied to you're getting. You know, as, as you go, you know, maybe we need to give you four points for meditation and then we'll, then right. we'll get you over the edge. The you know? longer that I go without meditating, the <laughs> app starts get... to wait. Okay, you need to meditate a little bit All more, right, bro. points. We'll give you 100, <laughs> 100 points. points. So, okay, nutrition, movement, mind, recovery. I would assume, like, as more data is available, more pillars could come online based off of what uh, the models and the data suggest. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite simple right now. Um, the, the cool thing is you also get a bit of a kind of a crowd a crowdsourcing uh, mm -hmm. thing that will be going on. Sure. We'll, we'll more and more allow people to actually enter in things that they're trying or doing. Mm -hmm. And so our our thing is like, take everything at face value. If someone thinks something's work, hey, do it. But right. now we're giving you a method to actually measure whether it's working or not. Mm -hmm. And if there's enough people that are doing that intervention, that, that action, then we'll start to see who right. it's working for, for who, and in combination with what mm -hmm. other actions. Right. So it, it sounds like a complicated matrix, but that's the great thing that, you know, computers and AI are very good at yeah. <laughs> keeping these things straight. So Speaking of complicated matrix, I think one other, we were talking about, okay, more users are we're wearing more wearables, so there's more data out, out there. Mm -hmm. The missing part of that that I forgot to bring up is wearables are actually getting better. Yep. And so we're not only are we getting more data, but our wearables are actually getting more precise about things. Yep. So like, is the bull case for this is like almost any variable 
about the human body, like our our glucose in our blood, our insulin levels, like mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, yep. is actually going to become more and more measurable. Yep. And that just all gets fed into this app, this app that you're building. Yeah. yeah. And it's happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and like you're saying, that then you get an exponential effect of like the, the, the thing that we're missing right now, other than, you know, humanity uh, doing it is we're just not using the data. Mm-hmm. But yeah, once once more people are using that data like we are, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, then the acceleration comes from better measurements, uh, measuring different things. And everything is an indirect measurement. Mm-hmm. I think people forget that, like mm-hmm. everything is an indirect measurement. You're not you're not necessarily, you know, measuring the molecule happening in the cell. But the great thing is all of those things, when you have enough of that data, you can understand what that indirect measurement means. Right. You triangulate, I think, right. is what we were you know, saying. You triangulate a couple of these things together, just like heart rate and, and, and movement pattern, and you're, you're vastly ahead of where you were with sure. just one of them. So Yeah. And maybe we can take this back to the beginning, which is uh, this is a perspective, uh, an advantage point that the traditional healthcare system has not been able to have or be able to operate with. Yeah. Uh, and so with all of this data and with this data being made available to everyone, mm-hmm. uh, what, is your, what is your hopeful case for the healthcare industry as it, it is able to, to change and adapt <laughs> to this new, new paradigm? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, one hope is I see that I hope they see us much later <laughs> in life. <laughs> Sorry, guys, you're not going to see me for a few decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's one hope. Um, I think the other thing is, I mean, we started to see this a bit in COVID. And honestly, it took us about six months into COVID to start even or at least, you know, pe- people talking about it was, hey, we have all these different treatments. So once people are already in a bad way, they need to go into the hospital Um we have all these different treatments and all different hospitals are like, we're desperately trying to try different things because we wanted to save these people. It's like, do, do ventilators help? Do ventilators not help? Right. Who do ventilators help and who do they not help? Like we were trying to get this matrix and it started to get organized a little bit, but I, can, I think it showed like a promise for the future is like, you should walk into that hospital visit mm-hmm. on that unfortunate day that you need it. And they should have it pretty personalized to know, hey, We've read all these things right. off of, you know, David's body or Mike, Mike's body. And we now can have basically a diagnosis. But much more importantly, we know we want to get David's body back to this right. stabilized and, and healthy point. And we know the route that right. we've done that on for other people uh-huh. like David. Right. And so, you, again, you're, you're less trying to categorize things. You're just letting the AI say, we have seen this before. Right. And we know how to get this person back to that. that mm-hmm. the, we know the path. Right. right, right. Where the current uh, practice of medicine is probably just so blunt, as in just so like it produces best practices for standard of care comes from a very sometimes not varied enough population of use, uh, of patients, right. mm-hmm. and and sometimes too varied mm-hmm. in the sense that the standard of care is like the the least harm that we can do to the general population. Right. Unfortunately, you're not the general population. Right. Yeah. When you walk into a hospital, you are treated as if you are general population, which you both are and you are not. Yeah. Right. And with this new world with you can come in, maybe they scan your wearable, mm-hmm. download all of your data and be like, mm-hmm. here's what this person is. Here's how they're different from the general population. Mm-hmm. Here's a much more surgical intervention that we can apply that's appropriate for this person based off of that data mm-hmm. rather than having to like go to a textbook that did some study about some people that aggregated some data and yep. made some blanket statement about all of these people that it and the, the only reason why we operate on that 
uh, with that study is that because we proved that it didn't harm yeah. any people and it provided some marginal benefit. That, that's our current yeah. way. Yeah. And the the new way is just something far more precise. Yep. Yeah. And 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 I will I will say this. I think um, we're seeing we're seeing kind of an analogy with like large language models. Just a, mm-hmm. a shout out to the AI uh, right. watchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's been a, a lot of talk like, well, we need to we need to compute like the world's data uh, and spend, you know, a hundred million dollars to create a good LLM. Mm-hmm. But even just months later, we're seeing people do it with like much less compute. Right. Like sampling data, mm-hmm. like all the stuff that like saves money and time and, and, and pretty decent results from it. Right. Those mm-hmm. LLMs, those smaller LLMs are actually like performing pretty well. And so I think. I don't want to. I don't want people to come away being like, if only every single human on Earth was measured with right. a ton of stuff, and we feed that into the system. I think a lot of benefit comes from just a few extra things that we're measuring, mm-hmm. and just acting on them right. with an algorithm of saying, "Hey, we did this to this type of person, and this happened." It's it's really the biggest thing that we don't do now is we don't take that result of that thing, and then feed it back and train the algorithm more mm-hmm. like we don't mm. we we come up with a standard of care that comes from maybe some study that they did at a couple hospitals and then we basically stop feeding data into the system for the next 10 years right that standard of care just like statically lives right, right. and th- the biggest thing is we need to keep feeding the results in and be like hey actually seems you can both personalize it more because you do that because it, why did it work for that person and it didn't work for that person? Mm-hmm. You get so many of those cases that you then your algorithm gets smarter. It's like, oh, actually, for this person, we always do this type of person. We always do right. this thing. Right. And so I think I don't want to I want people to understand that it, just using the data that we almost already have, mm-hmm. we can do much better very Quite quickly. So. Michael, thank you so much for, for guiding us down this conversation. Thank you, um, David. If people are interested in trying out the Humanity app, where can they go? Yeah, so uh, if you have an iPhone, <laughs> you can use it right now. So just go to the App Store, put in like Humanity, Humanity Health, uh, and uh, yeah, check it out. And we love feedback. You know, we're, we're constantly learning and growing. And we, you know, the more data we have, the better it is for every single user. Uh, and then Android is coming soon. Okay. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an Android user. Uh, so I, I feel the pain of the Android mm-hmm. users. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we want to be very inclusive. So Android is coming soon. Uh, and then I think if anybody out there is interested in, you know, opening up health data, synthetic data, kind of uh, looking at things like that, where you're pre- preserving the privacy of data, but then allowing models to be built on it, federated learning, I would love, I'm, I'm open to all conversations. So we'd love to talk about that too. Awesome, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Cheers.